I'm just really excited that I get to be a part of the journey of documenting how communities across our country are doing this. Welcome to the Community Broadband Bits Podcast, the Writer's Takeover Edition, episode 471. I am LeVar Burton, sitting in as a guest host for Chris Mitchell in his absence. Okay, I'm not LeVar Burton, even though I'd love to host Jeopardy or The Reading Rainbow, but it's just me, Sean Gonsal, senior reporter and editor on the Community Broadband Network's team. And I have the con for this episode to borrow a bit of submarine lingo from one of my favorite movies with Denzel Washington and Gene Hackman, Crimson Tide. If you haven't seen it, you should check it out. We have not committed mutiny. Uh, Chris is, believe it or not, on vacation. Uh, It does happen. And so that's why I've got the con, but I'm not alone here on the submarine today. I've got two of my distinguished, illustrious colleagues with me, Marin Maclis, the Shonda Rhimes or the Francis Ford Coppola, Sophia Coppola of the team, if you will, one of our researchers, writers, and video editors extraordinaire, and Rye Marcatilio McCracken, the grizzly veteran researcher and writer of our team that we affectionately call Dr. MacGyver. He's a 5-2 player with a perfect name for baseball, and he's the oldest millennial on the planet. Welcome, guys. You just dragged dry <laughs> so hard. But was it accurate? <laughs> it's accurate. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to subject to the description that you gave. <laughs> it's good to be here, Sean. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having us. So I, I, I use the submarine metaphor for, for a reason. Well, well, first of all, I never met a metaphor that I didn't like. Uh, but I use the submarine metaphor because I want us to go a little subterranean today. Not like Mariana's trench deep, but, well, I should have used the snorkeling metaphor because we're going to skim the surface, but submarines are way cooler than snorkels to me. So I figured we'd just go with that. Um, you know, I don't mean to imply that we're in over our heads or that we're going to drown, <laughs> but uh, we might. But I want to ask each of you about how you got into this, and then we're going to come back and cover some of the interesting work that we're doing now, because of course we don't want to let Chris get all the credit. So let's uh, share a little bit about ourselves and uh, our contributions. So Rye, let's start with you. Um, You being, as I said, the grizzly veteran of the team. Um, What did you do before you got here and why did you dive into the battle for better broadband? Sure. Uh, So thank you, Sean. It's great to be here with you and Marin and talk for a little while. So as Sean said, I'm a senior researcher on the team. I joined Chris after Lisa left, and I have been writing or editing most of the things that appear on the website in the last year and a half or so, as well as working on some longer-term projects. I've got undergrad degrees from St. Cloud State University, which is a little teacher's college in central Minnesota, and a master's and a PhD from Oklahoma State. Uh, I got my PhD in American history in 2014. Uh, with a research emphasis in science, medicine, and technology. And then I taught for a while uh, and wrote a book on the history of forced sterilization and eugenics in Kansas, a very, um, you know, pick-me-up kind of topic. Uh, <laughs> I was very popular at dinner parties. Uh, and uh, while I will always uh, remember with love the smell of a library, I'd been looking for a way to get out of higher ed for a while and do something in the nonprofit world or policy-oriented 
that would have a little bit more of an immediate impact. Um, on a personal note, I've always been a, a computer hardware software guy. Um, I built my first computer using parts from this little website that some people might remember that used to exist, does not anymore, uh, mgepc.com. And uh, I remember that name because the first time I turned that computer on with the power supply that I bought from that website, it blew up and threw smoke all over the room. <laughs> uh, that was at my first LAN, uh, where I think uh, was also the first time uh, I remember putting together Cat5 cables from a big spool in a friend's basement here in central Minnesota, uh, somewhere around the fall of 1999. Uh, academically, I've always been interested in uh, what people can do with technology. Um, especially the things that have the potential to democratize the world around us, like the Internet. I'm also interested in the ways that we can make our communities more resilient. And so it's been a real pleasure not only to talk to policymakers, but cities and counties and um, cooperatives about the work they're doing uh, every day to build locally accountable networks uh, around the country. Now, you see, Marin, that's 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 why he's earned the, the name Dr. MacGyver. The man does a little bit of everything. I know. I, I can't even dream of mounting up to that kind of a a journey. <laughs> he probably he, he's probably a master ping pong player too. You know, I do love a good game of ping pong. I Knew mean, it. <laughs> but you guys are definitely talking to me up way more than uh than I deserve. I want to hear uh about what Marin was doing before she joined us at Alice. Let's go, Marin. Lay it on us. All right. All right. Well, yeah, it's not gonna be nearly the same story that uh that Rye has. I have like zero background in broadband, but um, I actually come from an investigative journalism background, like right out of college. I joined a team in DC and, you know, have covered, um, you know, the Clinton Foundation, the Clinton campaign, Trump, um, and all sorts of different subjects. Uh, I think something that I kind of struggled with, with journalism is I would just basically dive into this subject and become so immersed in it that I would ultimately, I mean, some of my editors told me that I cared too much about some, some of the things that I covered. Um, the last thing that I covered pretty in depth was about sexual assault on tribal lands, which has nothing to do with broadband, but I spent two years basically traveling to different reservations and, and learning about this. And I cared about it so much that I would have nightmares and, you know, like wake up in like a cold sweat and want to do something about it and became what I feel like was a, a pretty extensive expert on the subject. And, and then ultimately wasn't able to do anything about it. Um, like I could only just tell the story of, of what I saw and I wasn't able to, to make any impactful changes, um, which, is a bummer <laughs> to, to spend, you know, two years of your life on something and not be able to really do anything about it. So I ended up leaving DC, coming to Minnesota, and then found the Institute for Local Self-Reliance and found you fine folks here. So I'm not only here uh, documenting communities and what they're doing to help their residents, but actually able to help them make those changes and actually be able to reach into a community and help with grassroots movements and um, make a difference. So it's, it's been really cool. I think something that I've realized with over the past year is that internet access is absolutely crucial for creating equity and a more just world. Um, 
can't apply to most jobs without internet access. You can't access resources. It's, it's really hard to, you know, get out of any sort of inequitable situation without access to connection. And so I'm just really excited that I get to be a part of the journey of documenting how communities across our country are doing this. So Sean, what about you? I want to hear about you. <laughs> well, I really, I really vibe. I, re- I really resonate with uh, what you said. Um, you know, I come from a print journalism background um, and I kind of did it backwards. Not kind of, I did it backwards. I started off actually as a columnist, um, was lucky enough to get syndicated um, at a, at a, young age in my early twenties, just because I had a big mouth and a lot to say and had read a ton, uh, over the years. And, um, it's funny when I was a, when I was a kid, I used to force my mother to sit at the kitchen table while I pretended to be a, a news broadcaster. And that was because, you know, that was, I'm old enough. That was, yes, that was back before cell phones and PCs and things like that. So you had to, you know, get a little creative in how you occupied your time. And it's funny that I did that because growing up, through high school and even after high school, I had no inclination of wanting to be a journalist per se or become a reporter. It just sort of happened when, again, something riled me up. I wrote about it, developed a relationship with uh, 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 the editor of the local newspaper in the area I was living in. And um, that led to the column and syndication. And then I was hired as a reporter and I did that for two decades. I was on news, uh, worked on the, as a news editor for a few years. And after 20 years, I left to get into the uh, the consulting business or the dark side, as they say in, in, in newsrooms, consulting, you know, various clients that were paying a pretty, pretty nice sum to get advice on how to tell their story and get it out there and, you know, how to deal with crisis communications and things like that. And then, you know, after I burnt out with that, luckily, I had already developed a relationship with Chris and he was into this broadband stuff and I was just fascinated by it and, and um, tried to learn more and more. And uh, when this opportunity presented itself to get back to my roots in terms of writing and journalism, I jumped at it, especially because at ILSR with the focus on sort of the anti-monopoly work, that's something that was always near and dear to my heart. I've always been concerned you know, coming from a very marginalized community, I've always, that's always been something that's been of real interest to me, the power dynamics in the society and how folks, how we can help get resources and tools in the hands of folks that have kind of been left on the margins. And to my mind, certainly internet access is, is, is an important part of that and an important tool. So I saw this as kind of like a practical way to make a small contribution in terms of getting people the kind of information and connections and so forth that they needed to really kind of harness the power that 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 folks have within themselves and then within communities to kind of claw back some of the power that we feel I think most of us feel we're living in this world that uh, where you know there's these big powerful entities out there that have so much control over our day-to-day lives and get to make these decisions in faraway places that affect local communities and and how cool would it be to be a part of something that is trying to sort of bring some balance back and, 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 and re-energize communities and, and remind people of the power that they have. So here I am and here we are, and um, I, I, I'm loving it, actually. As I said earlier, I think we don't want Chris to get all the credit. So let's, 
let's let's spend a few minutes talking about some of the contributions that each of us are making currently and recently. Marin, why don't you why don't you start us off on on, on this front this time? Yeah, sure. Um, so one of the communities that uh, I've recently written about uh, was Cleveland, Ohio, which represent I'm from Ohio, so I'm very excited about this uh, project. But um, and my dad was actually born and raised in Cleveland. So I recently covered this nonprofit out of Cleveland called Digital C. Just to give you a little bit of background about Cleveland, um, the National Digital Inclusion Alliance, NDIA, uses the American Community Survey to create this annual list of the worst connected cities throughout the country. And Cleveland is not doing too hot. Um, It hasn't been doing very well for a while. And in 2019, it was ranked seventh in the nation. And then if you actually look at that list and look at, you know, the cities that have a population of over 100,000, it is the worst connected, according to NDIA. Digital C, this nonprofit in Cleveland is very much aware of that. <laughs> it's actually like part of what their their messaging of, of what they're trying to do. They're really focused on trying to make Cleveland, the greater Cleveland area, more digitally equitable. So they've done this through a few different things. So they have Um, Back in 2003, they um, built a fiber backbone network that they ended up ultimately selling to an ISP, but that was all in the effort of having more broadband access throughout the city. Now it has created this WISP and the WISP is called Empower CLE. Since it started its first pilot project in 2018, it has covered nearly 1,000 households. A lot of that ended up getting sped up during the pandemic. Basically they had, you know, all of these different parts of the community that really needed access. Like all of us have seen throughout our reporting, talking to all these different communities, you know, with work from home, with, you know, doing uh, distance learning, they, there needed to be better access. So they created this um, program that's um, $18 a month, Um, So very affordable. They're really focused Mm -hmm. on the affordability aspect of it. One of the things that Angela Bennett told me, she's with Digital C, she said, our philosophy is that we will never disconnect anyone because of their inability to pay. And it's not access if you can't afford it. Um, And that's something that they really, really stand by when they were kind of planning where they would expand this project. Mm -hmm. They they took redlining maps of Cleveland actually, and um, they overlapped the access to broadband maps that existed and were able to see that there was a lot of overlap with the red areas, like parts of the community that have gone for decades without access to home ownership, to generational wealth, also didn't have broadband. and that's something that you can actually see that map in the in the story that's on muninetworks.org. Um, but for yourself, you can see just how stark that overlap is. So I thought that this was a really awesome project. Wanted to write a little bit about it. And um, yeah, it just seems like they're doing really great work in Cleveland. So yeah, yeah. I mean, and this is some, you, you, you know, you mentioned redlining, and that's a term that we hear more and more frequently, digital redlining, um, mm-hmm. which... Um, 
you know, as I understand it, is 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 you know similar to you know the 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 horrid history of of, of redlining as it relates to home ownership, but that what we what we see particularly in metro areas are these you know the big cable companies and tele, tel, telco companies essentially cherry picking which areas they're going to serve, which tend to leave out a lot of communities of color and people that don't really have uh, you know a lot of wealth, and so you've got this digital redlining and and. I, so I'm really, I, I was really fascinated by by the story and and the work that Digital C is doing, mm-hmm. and you know it reminded me about one of the things I wrote about recently with the infrastructure bill, um, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act that that just passed the Senate recently. One of the things in it that I called ugly of the good, bad, and ugly that's in it is that it requires the FCC to study this stuff and come up with these recommendations. And I said it was ugly because essentially it gives the FCC two years to look at something that we know is happening right now like in places like Cleveland. And so I hope that when the FCC gets around to looking at digital redlining these things, that they look to digital C to, to, to learn lessons in, in terms of how you address, address these things. So I, I think that story is, is fascinating and I'm glad that, glad that you wrote about it. Um, I'm sure LeBron James is somewhere smiling at, at, at your efforts right now. God, I can only hope, I can only hope that LeBron read that one small article. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Good work. Good work. Now, Rye, you have been involved in a project, uh, an extensive project that produced a massive report on the state of connectivity in Minnesota. Tell tell us about that. We released this report in 2014 called All Hands on Deck, which featured a series of case studies on counties and cities and cooperatives, uh, as well as policy recommendations um, on these case studies that were in their early years or just getting started um, about how Minnesota could meet its connectivity goals. Uh, and so with support from the Blandon Foundation, we went back to these original communities to look at what happened from then into today. Uh, and then we also added about eight new case studies, including two private providers. Uh, and so that occupied uh, a bunch of my time the first half of this year. Um, and then the report, which just released about three weeks ago, uh, is called Minnesota Broadband, the land of 10,000 connectivity solutions. Uh, it's available at ILSR.org. Uh, and it shows all the different models uh, that exist. It shows all the lessons learned and the diverse models and paths to success. Uh, there are a bunch of really, really great stories in there about grassroots organizing and local leadership and creativity uh, and persistence. You know, there's a, there's a a number of case studies in there there's some interesting ones in there too that maybe we might want to highlight a little bit, like RS Fiber Cooperative. And shout out to cooperatives, by the way, which we should mention that you know, as I've as I've been here, I've come to learn just how well positioned cooperatives are in delivering the kind of connectivity, uh, the you know that local internet choice. And so the story about in the case study in RS Fiber Cooperative, and I think it's in South Central Minnesota. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So yeah, RS Fiber is a little bit unique in that it's just a broadband cooperative. It's not an electric co-op or a telephone co-op that has branched into the broadband business. It's a pure broadband cooperative. They're located maybe uh, 20 miles north of where I'm sitting right now. Um, And when we covered them in 2014, it was still a mostly theoretical project uh, and has since brought fiber to towns and uh, businesses in the area. And then for people that are living outside of those population centers, they can benefit from internet access through RS Air which is an RS fiber fed wireless service um, with um, some, some pretty good speed outcomes uh, at affordable prices. And that's uh, an important part of this, their success. 
as well. Another benefit of the RS Fiber project has been that the cable company uh, Mediacom in the area seems to have lowered its prices significantly in uh, what is now a newly competitive uh, environment. It's amazing what competition brings, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you mentioned the, some of the, the, the impressive speeds that are showcased there. You know, there's another case study you did that about one of the favorite names of, 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 of mine for any cooperative telephone or electric co-op, but the Paul, Paul Bunyan Communications. I love that name. Um, <laughs> tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So Paul Bunyan is in the north central part of the state. It's uh, uh, relatively sparsely populated. Uh, and yet they've been steadily expanding their fiber network over the last 10 years or so um, and increasing the number of passings something like sevenfold by aggressively reinvesting and taking advantage of anchor partnerships to bring service to new areas adjacent to where they serve. They just launched, they originally had their GigaZone service, which is one gigabit symmetrical to everybody. And they just recently, a couple of weeks ago, announced that they were upgrading uh, speed their speeds available to two, five, and ten gigabit symmetrical. Yeah, that that, that that's incredible. That's mm-hmm. that kind of you talk about future proof. That's mm-hmm. that's future proof to the max. There, that's <laughs> that, that that's that's great. Now, I know you spent a lot of time working on this uh, on this report. Um, so, you know, let me flip the tables. You're, you've been a teacher for a long time, but let me let me let me flip the tables on you and say and ask you, what did you learn? What are some of the big takeaways from 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 this report? Do you think? Sure. So I think uh, we learned a few important things. Uh, Number one is that broadband projects are something that take effort, just like any other infrastructure issue. Um, But affordable, accessible, reliable uh, internet access is one of the silver bullets to moving the needle on issues of of equity uh, and race and education and the wage gaps in our lifetime. Uh, And so it's an important thing to do. Uh, Another thing that I think we learned is that there are many paths to success. But there are also paths that don't lead to as fruitful outcomes uh, as is possible, which is why, just like anything, uh, broadband is something that has to be approached uh, with clear eyes uh, and a responsible mindset. Uh, and then the last thing is, is that communities don't often get into this just because they want to. They build public broadband infrastructure because the huge out-of-state private providers have refused to, often despite years of being asked and often years of receiving state and federal funds to do so. Uh, Cities and communities do it because the marketplace around them is fundamentally broken and they see too many of their family members and neighbors and friends stuck on the wrong side of the digital divide. Well said. Okay. Well, last but not least, uh, I'll share with you a bit of of what I wrote about recently, which is um, the New Hampshire Electric Cooperative, uh, who created uh, a new subsidiary called NH Broadband. And the cooperative... uh, Recently, well, I guess it was in December of 2020, where the uh, co-op members voted to authorize the co-op to bring fiber to the home service to their 84,000 members that are spread out across 115 towns and cities in New Hampshire. So it's a it's a it's a wide area. Um, and just weeks after they got approval to do that, they connected the first 900 households in the town of Lemster, Clarksville, Colebrook, and Stewartstown. They used uh, $6.7 million in grant money that they got from the state. And then last month, after having gotten another $6.5 million from the federal uh, Ardoff um, auction, they began expanding the network into two other towns, in the town of Sandwich and Ackworth. So that means that they're going to be able to 
provide service to another 1,500 homes and businesses by, the, by early 2022. You know, one of the things I thought was actually really cool, and this is something that you never see in the, in, you know, among our, you know, regional incumbent providers, um, which is that when they first started offering the service, their lowest service tier was a symmetrical 25 megabits per second for 50 bucks a month. Last week, because they're doing so well, they announced that they were upgrading every subscriber on that bottom tier to symmetrical 100 megabits per second at no extra cost. I mean, that's, you know, that, that, that's pretty cool. I mean, imagine getting a, a phone call or an email from your internet service provider saying, hey, we're giving you an extra 75 megabits per second per month at no extra cost. So that, I thought that was something that was, that, that was really interesting. So right now, if you're a subscriber there, you're talking about you have a choice of either the symmetrical uh, 100 megs or you for 50 a month, or you can get a symmetrical gig connection for 90 a month. That is a great price too. Well, you know, definitely, you know, in comparison to 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 the area that I'm in here, um, which isn't too far away from from New Hampshire. The cost of build out, they're projected it will cost about 83 million bucks. And they are thinking right now they're doing this town by town. They're thinking they can use a combination of revenue from new subscribers and capital loans and government grants, including some of the money that's allocated to the state under the American Rescue Plan Act or that will be forthcoming, hopefully, in the uh, infrastructure bill. And then another sort of little cool little caveat was that in April, uh, Vice President Kamala Harris visited their headquarters in Plymouth, New Hampshire, to you know, get a to to get a look around and to learn and, and and frankly to highlight the fact that the Biden administration has 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 really uh, made it a point to want to fund efforts for broadband infrastructure for networks just like the kind we're seeing there in the in a, in a rural area uh, in 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 the state of New Hampshire. That's something that's on the uh, the website now. All three of us are working on various other very cool stories that we hope folks. Continue to check out on muninetworks.org. Well, I don't know about you guys, but I think we probably should wrap this up um, before Chris gets canceled as a host <laughs> because we did such an incredible job and the ratings are through the roof. Um, seriously, though, to our listeners out there, um, you know, I invite you to let Chris know how ridiculously good we were. Um, or I suppose if you really want to, you can email him and tell him to never let this happen again. But we love to hear from folks. We love feedback. The work of all, all of us, Marin, Rye, myself, you can find on muninetworks.org. And um, occasionally you'll um, come across some stuff Chris does on there as well. <laughs> Till next time or not, CBN writing team, over and out. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this and other podcasts from ILSR, including Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ilsr.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount keeps us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. 
This was the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. Thanks for listening.